everyone, it's Madison. I wanted to thank you for tuning in if you're brand new here. And if you are an old friend, thanks for coming back. Real quick announcement on December 2nd, Brittany, myself, and Lila will be at Columbus GalaxyCon presenting four different panels. So if you're in the area and you would like to come check us out, we'd appreciate that. Come say hello, give us a shout out. We'd greatly appreciate that. That said, we have some big announcements coming either at the end of this week or early next week about either live episodes or possible community events here starting in December and January. Wait and see. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Gifts are coming early. Love you all, and thank you for tuning in. This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. You've journeyed long and far to this distant world in search of lost knowledge. You found the temple, but search for a missing tome. Quick, roll an investigation check. 18. Impressive. You search a few rooms, and there it is, hidden in a compartment behind a throne. You open the tome and begin looking at the magical script. Roll an arcana check. Natural 20. Success. Now it's time to unlock all the knowledge of... Ben Richton's Guide to Monsters and Lore. Hey everyone, welcome back to Ben Richton's Guide to Monsters and Lore. And everything else, including how to make the perfect ramen. <laughs> Listen, if you can let me know, I would love to get that from you. Uh, step one is the stock. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nah, most important part. <laughs> <laughs> if your stock is no good, the whole dish is ruined. It's just out the window. Get rid of it. Just throw it. Throw, throw the whole <laughs> bowl full of noodles and everything. Just toss it out the window. Even if you live on the top floor, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are so glad to have you all joining us again. This is episode two of this series where we talk about the real life mythology behind the monsters of Dungeons and Dragons. So who are we? I don't know. Uh, Steve. Steve. Like Steve Irwin? Maybe. I was going to say Pirate Steve. Pirate Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or I'm Minecraft Steve. That's a famous Steve. Who? Minecraft Steve. Oh, I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> and my my kids don't really like video games, so I'm really lucky that way. Mm. <laughs> my kids are much more like, hey, let me do art. <laughs> <laughs> well, could not relate. Um, <laughs> I am very invested in gaming. That's just me. <laughs> Uh, no, I am Madison, uh, uh, your co-host and support and here to make stupid jokes. And I am Ben, the, I guess the brains of the operation. <laughs> <laughs> no, kidding, kidding. Um, and I am a PhD student in cultural studies. Love to talk about some monsters. Well, it's really easy. All you have to do is look at the United States House of Representatives, and anyone with an R next to their name is likely a monster, and very likely as well that there are skeletons in their closet. They are so monstrous, they have buried skeletons. Listen, we can talk about the mythology of that type of monster, but this is not a podcast about, you know, American problems. <laughs> they are the real monsters. <laughs> The real monsters. Yeah, well, I guess we're only talking about fictional monsters here. 
But what monsters are we talking about this month? Yes. Um, well, before I even get into that, I just wanted to make people aware the current edition of D&D we're in is 5E. It was published almost 10 years ago now. And <gasps> next year, yes, next year is the 50th anniversary of D&D. Oh my so gosh. I found out everything's being revamped. There is a new player's handbook, new monster manual in 2024. Is the 50th anniversary, is that like a China year? Is that like a gold year? Is it like, like, what do you give someone on the 50th anniversary? Oh, isn't it like silver or seven? Okay, you heard it, guys. You have to go buy silver for d and <laughs> I feel like... No, I'm literally looking this up right now. <laughs> no, it's the gold. It's the gold year. See, I was right. Yeah, you were right all along. Okay. Go get your gold. It is a gold year. Yes. Um, so I guess if you were planning to celebrate accordingly, get all your new D&D merch because it's coming. They are revamping <laughs> everything. Well, I, I I thought originally the original plan was to make uh, D&D 1 backwards compatible. See, would they But I've not been following it because it's like really contentious online and people are really mean about it. So I decided <sighs> to stop following it right now. Yeah, yeah. It's okay to not wade into the bad discourse. <laughs> it's okay all i know is everyone hates a wizard right now <laughs> oh okay <laughs> oh the drama so what are we talking about this month what kind of monsters yes what are we talking about um last month we decided to do some celtic and irish monsters keeping in line with like the tradition of uh halloween uh this month we have pivoted to monsters of persian origin looking into the Ooh. middle east part of the world Yeah, yeah great part of the world some of my favorite foods uh-huh, uh-huh. it's i'm very excited because there's a lot of very very deep mythology we are just going to give you a very small slice of it today with some of the monsters but it is like thousands of years of monster history so if you want the new york slice you gotta do your own reading but we're gonna give you like the standard chicago style slice yeah, it goes like it's it's deep, like on the surface, but it's only, you know, so big. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a huge slice like the New York slice. Got it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so what are we talking about? What monsters exactly? Because we got a lot, don't we? Yes, I did three this time. <gasps> we tried to do five for the Celtic episode and five was ambitious. So I, I think we ended back. it with three, didn't we? I think we did like three and a half. <laughs> Yeah, three and a half. Uh, we're going to do three. That's much more doable. We're going to be able to give you the deep cuts for these three monsters. So this or this month, we have the Simurg bird. We have the classic genie or djinn. And then we have the manticore, which I know you've all heard about. I've never heard of a genie. Well, we're going to tell you what it is today. <laughs> Before we get into some of this monster history... I did just want to point out, because I didn't get a chance to say this last episode, a lot of where the monsters come from for D&D, because at this point, the monster manual is hundreds of pages long. Like it is, there's a lot of stuff in there. Uh, a lot of them come from the like world building of J.R.R. Tolkien, publisher and author of Lord of the Rings, right? And then from also, and this is a deep cut, there's something called the Fiend Folio which was published in 1981, so a little bit after D&D started, in the UK. And it was literally a magazine that opened submissions for anyone who wanted to. 
and a bunch of people submitted their ideas for monsters for D&D. And literally, that is a lot of what we have today is based on their submissions. So a lot of them are like culturally inaccurate, they're mistranslated, they're... I mean, the same thing, we've talked about that on Pokey Science, that like, uh, oh my gosh, yokai are the same way. Yes. Uh, most of the knowledge of the yokai actually comes from some like French super fan in the 1800s, who was like, these are the stories of yokai. Mm. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, I believe you. <laughs> Yes. Um, so yeah, something we're trying to do in this series is take some of those uh, submissions, how D&D misconstrues them and try the correct course and talk about the real where they came from in real history. And they do change and update the back lore for many of the monsters as the additions grow. Yes, I know that I know that for a lot of them, like the lore has changed throughout the year. It's like we talked about in the last episode, Marrow, and Marrow went from, you know, very basic to much more complex lore. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. saying they always get it right. I'm just like, it, it does change. That's all. It is. They do. And actually, that's what you were just saying is the now that D&D stuff is updating recently, that people have a lot to say about it. So, well, and here's the thing. And I, I, I want to be clear because I know, uh, I know that. I'm not trying to get on my high horse, especially like you know, as the two of us are, are, are fellow queers and as, as a woman here. <laughs> uh, but I do know, especially having a lot of friends around the world and, you know, purposely ch- having chosen to live in the international dorm when I was doing my undergrad and having that expose me to people from every walks of life. And I mean, to be fair, at this point, I've dated people from all over the globe too. <laughs> I, but, you know, like anyways, you know, I do know, and I've seen it firsthand, the impact on people it has when you marginalize their cultures, their beliefs, and their customs and treat it as if it is something of a game. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, and I want to be clear, I do like that D&D at least also uses Western uh, Western religions as well. Yes, as mythology. Yeah, I, I, I will say that I do enjoy that. Like, to them, it's like nothing is... is because, like, you know, Pokemon really hasn't given us an angel yet. <laughs> it <laughs> needs to sure happen, they guys. they should, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like, Digimon did not yeah. shy away from that. They're like, that's a oh. Garuda from Hindu mythology, and that's an angel. And, and <laughs> like, there was no, you know, there was no, uh, that dude has Vulcan's hammer. That, that's a Greek. Like, you know, there was no, no concern of where the lore came from. Uh-huh. But I, I do know... I guess like that's one thing I have to say. I do appreciate D and D that like everything's fair game, but I still want to stand with when we marginalize and trivialize and kind of diminish actual lore and culture behind things. Sometimes you know it it can feel hurtful and it is harmful to many people's cultures. Like you know when we go around and we misconstrued or misunderstand or misbelieve it does impact those relations and how people feel that they fit in. So mm-hmm. without trying to be quote unquote woke, I do actually genuinely appreciate the attempts and efforts to rectify as they go. And I'm curious to see what D&D won, especially with Wizards and D&D's current outlook and the way that they currently approach uh, social concerns. I'm very curious to see what they do with monsters, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's all so true and correct and that's why we're focusing on the monster part because monsters are such a critical universal part of human culture and we did talk about that in episode one if you haven't listened to it yet 
Yes, we do. Um, <laughs> it's important to know, like, monsters are not just some fringe cultural belief. They're like a critical foundation to how people interact with the world. And for the most part, they get really angry about wedding dress sales. <laughs> are you the monster? <laughs> That is not how I shop in any way, shape, or form. No, we are not Karen's here. (laughs) Moving on. Yes, let us dive into some of these monsters from Persia. So, first monster on the list, we got the Simurg. Now, this is also written as the Senmurv, the Samorg, the Samorv, all variation, similar to each other. And what is the Samurg? It is a benevolent mythical bird-mammal hybrid uh, that shows up in Persian mythology and literature. It is depicted in Iranian art or Iranian art as uh-huh. a winged creature, gigantic enough to carry a elephant or perhaps even a whale away. I don't know how big this thing is meant to be if it can carry a whale with no issue, but that's fine. Um, So most of the time in artistic renderings, it appears as a peacock with the head of a dog and the claws similar to a lion. Sometimes it has a human face. Uh, The Samurg is inherently benevolent, which is unique compared to some other monsters. It is associated with healing, fertility, the well-being of nature, of nature, the well-being of nature. And according to folklore, it has a real problem with snakes. Um, snakes and Senmergs or Simurgs do not get along. So they're like Indiana Jones. Yes. They deal <laughs> with temples and artifacts, mm-hmm. but they hate mm-hmm. snakes. But they hate snakes, yes. And they're very um, flashy. Very flashy. Just and we like will Indiana get Jones. <laughs> yeah. LOL. Um, yeah, we'll get to the flashiness when we get to the D&D part, but that that's common. So the thing to know about the Simurg, sometimes it is equated with other mythological birds you've heard of. Uh, there's the Huma bird, there's the Phoenix, but we have to understand that the Simurg is completely different. It is not the same as those other birds, despite being incredibly similar, especially over thousands of years, these things kind of get melded together. And so just knowing that off the bat, that these are different creatures from each other, this is kind of where we run into difficulty when trying to find the true origins of a creature like the Simurg bird when they show up in pop culture. Because sometimes when you get to the pop culture part, thousands of years later, they end up being inspired by like four animals at once. (laughs) Cultural narratives travel, they mesh, they merge. Um, I think similar to this, because this is a Pokemon podcast, primarily that Moltres is also similar that like, it's kind of a Phoenix and also not. I've heard connections to uh, Articuno. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because some of the connections are like temples and stuff. And I think we've mentioned that at conventions. That would make sense. At Science or Pokey Science, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean, that like, it's hard to pin down like, yes, this animal in this pop culture thing is based on this particular thing. Like, actually, it's a little bit more confusing than that. However, pushing that aside, we're just talking about the Simarg as is, where does it come from? That's the question we want to know. So in actual Persian mythology and Persian history... The Simarch shows up most famously in the epic poem, I think it's pronounced Shanama or Shanama. English translation is similar to Book of Kings. And this is written by the Iranian epic poet Ferdowsi around the year 1000. So we're talking, you know, multiple centuries ago that the Simarch shows up for 
not the first time, but the most famous time. Uh, and in that poem, a very compassionate, benevolent Simurgh bird instructs the Prince Saul in how to perform a C-section on his wife to save his baby, who ends up becoming the epic Persian hero Rasta. The Simurgh also appears in the 12th century story, so about 100 years later or so, uh, called The Conference of the Birds by the Iranian poet Attar of Nishapur. And the title of the story comes directly from the Quran, chapter 27. In the story, the Simurgh is used as a metaphor for God in the Islamic tradition of Sufism, which is also known as like the phenomenon of mysticism within the umbrella of Islam. Um, so the Simurgh definitely has a religious origin in that aspect. Uh, a fun linguistic fact, the S-I in the beginning of Simurg, the first element of its name, uh, has been connected to the word in the Persian language that means 30. And so they're not actually fully related to each other in linguistic history. Like the Simurg bird is not called like the 30 bird, but people have connected it regardless. And so the number 30 shows up a lot when you're talking Simurg length. Simurgh legends. Um, for example, people say the Simurgh is as large as 30 birds combined, or that it had 30 different colors in its feathers. And last but not least, a little more fun fact, the Simurgh is a winged beast archetype in the Yu-Gi-Oh! trading card game. So it doesn't just show up in D&D, it's also elsewhere. Your move! <laughs> I gotta go back. I watched all of Yu-Gi-Oh! in 2017. I would love to watch it all again. <laughs> <laughs> I binged all five seasons. It was great. <laughs> Kaiba! You know uh, you know that Kaiba and Yugi were totally a thing. Oh, yes. We all know this. We all ship them, right? Right? <laughs> Just me? Okay. <laughs> I mean, like you're you're not you're not brooding and that obsessive over Subway if you don't have <laughs> rivals or lovers. Okay. <laughs> Our I don't know how that transitions into our next monster, but we'll work with it. <laughs> oh, boy. Next monster from Persian legends and mythology is a classic figure that you've probably heard of from the cultures of Southwestern Asia at large, the genie. Uh, and in Persian mythology, this creature is more known as a div or dev. So divs are described as having a very large humanoid body uh, with two horns on their heads. They have teeth that are similar to the tusks of a boar. They're powerful, they're cruel, they're cold-hearted, and they have a particular taste for human flesh. Um, love that part. Uh, despite their appearance, and in addition to their very great strength, many of them are also masters of sorcery. So they use magic, they afflict their enemies with nightmares, um, they're kind of dabbling in physical and metaphysical arts. Despite their... Persian origins, genies have been adapted according to beliefs of Islamic concepts of otherworldly entities at large. So you will see this creature show up in different guises and ways across various cultures who came into contact with the Middle East at any given point in human history. That being said, for a Western audience, probably the most popular characterization of a genie is the blue genie from Aladdin, the Disney film. You mean Will Smith? Yeah, correct. <laughs> no, the answer is Robin Williams. <laughs> Listen, I didn't see the live action Aladdin. I don't know about it. It was kind of funky to me. I'm glad people had fun, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. The interesting thing about- Get at him in the comments, everyone, right now. 
You can come at me. I didn't say the animated one was that much better. I mean, Aladdin's not my favorite Disney film, but it's fun. It's Get at him in the comments immediately. (laughs) (laughs) The more important thing, Disney aside, uh, is that the origin, the true origin of the genie is pretty disputed. Like, we don't really understand or know exactly where it came from. But a lot of scholars of this type of figure have decided that it might lie with the ancient Indian Vedic deities or devas who were then later demonized in Persian religion. So in Ferdowsi's 10th century epic poem, which we just talked about earlier, where the Simurg shows up performing a C-section, divs also show up as evil entities who are also endowed with a human shape and supernatural powers. This makes sense uh, because in later folklore, the divs are described as ugly demons with supernatural strength. So their transition from kind of deity-esque creatures to demons is a pretty direct line. Historically, though, divs seem to be rooted in deities from the Zoroastrian religion as well. Uh, And then they faded into like Persian folktales by the time of the 7th century Islamic conquest in that part of the world. So they've had a long history of like changing how they show up in mythology and culture. This is important to know. Divs are often confused with jinn, but again, like the Simurg and the Phoenix, the two terms are not equal to each other. The main key difference, the divs are usually considered purely evil, while the jinn have free will and are often morally ambivalent or even can be benevolent. Um, well, and I know like we see that in D&D lore too. The different Mm -hmm. types of jinn have different, like, ways of interacting with people and different goals. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's actually something that D&D gets right, is that there are different characterizations of these types of creatures. Yeah, and from a religious standpoint, in early Persian translations of the Quran, the jinn, or the term jinn, was used to refer to evil spirits, but later translations changed that word to div, because div is more or less synonymous with evil. And this will, so this point will show up in the D&D lore aspect or how D&D uses divs and jinn for its own purposes. But the term div is usually contrasted to terms like afarit, uh, shaitan, and taigat, who are also terms relating to devil worship and idols, all sort of demons in Islamic belief. Uh, and it indicates a relationship between those beings, but they, they are distinct from a quote-unquote regular jinn. And in one literary count, the div are literally intertwined with Marid, who is the type of devil. And one other spot that divs and like Persian, the Persian version of genies shows up is the classic collection of folktales called 1001 Nights. Is We will mention in just a bit, D&D pulls most of their references for jinn from... 1001 Nights, and they split up divs and jinn into four different categories. And so that's kind of interesting and cool that D&D kind of manipulates them in a different way. But overall, in Persian culture, just looking at their history, divs are usually regarded as equivalent to demons, and like I said earlier, synonymous with evil doing. Last but not least, we have the Manticore. I am thinking... From my perspective, you have probably heard of the Manticore somewhere in pop culture. Because it shows up everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) See, it shows up everywhere. Could even show up in your house. (laughs) I mean, yeah, don't don't date one though. They're really like telling you. They're real nasty, yeah. Yeah, she like ate all my food and everything. Oh, just awful. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, but they really do show up everywhere. They're in Adventure Time. They're in Harry Potter. They're at the Mount Olympus Water Park. They're in My Little Pony. They're in Dante's Inferno. Like, we're talking the whole run of pop culture. T- to be fair, though, like, as it is one of my favorites, everything's in Adventure Time. Yes. Nuclear everything. Holocaust, Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> gay vampires, like, you name it, it's there. It's there. The Manticore is no different. It's String also theory. <laughs> Just as important. <sighs> um, and of course, it also shows up in D&D. Um, so what is a manticore? If you haven't heard of it, it is a four-legged chimeric beast, usually with the head of a human, the body of a lion, and the tail of a scorpion. Sometimes the tail is drawn with venomous spikes, similar to like porcupine quills, that apparently can be launched at enemies like arrows with deadly accuracy and this rendering of the manticore is also showing definite similarities to the egyptian sphinx which makes sense because persia and egypt are not that far apart personality wise the manticore is super vicious it preys upon unfortunate victims often human victims it eats them whole it has three rows of teeth to help it in this regard super scary And this makes sense because across all translations of the manticore, or the word manticore, including Persian, Greek, and Latin, the name always translates to man-eater. So it lives up to its name. Every time. The question question we want to answer with this is, again, like the other creatures, where did this thing come from? So way, way, way back when, a guy named Theseus, who was a Greek physician of the Persian court, he wrote a book about ancient India in the 5th century BC. So this is like way before uh, the epic poem of Iran, based on accounts and descriptions of other travelers. So Theseus did not even go to India himself. He just listened to other people's stories and then decided he was an expert enough to write a book about it. So his description in this book of the manticore showed up, you know, lion body and scorpion tail and all. And then that description was used by multiple other authors, including the Roman encyclopedia author Pliny. That was in 77 AD. And then even later in 1607 by the English bestiary author Edward Topsell. So this account, even since um, Topsell's account, which is like three, four hundred years ago already now, this classic description of the manticore has survived all of those centuries. Uh, we still have the same description now. The only difference is that now it has wings most of the time. And we know that the wing element in its design was actually added. And according to what history I found, it was added for D&D specifically. Uh, and that happened in 1993. Um, one of the creators of D&D, Gary Gygax, 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 however we say that. Sorry, Gary. God bless. Um, he himself <laughs> describes wings of the manticore as bat-like, but then the 5e monster manual describes them as dragon-like. So these days, manticore still eats men, still has a tail of a scorpion, but now it has dragon wings. So I mean, again, just like, people, just like that girl I dated. <laughs> just eating them alive. <laughs> sure, yeah, probably. Real nasty. <laughs> you ever see a manticore run the other way uh, <laughs> excellent <laughs> the other thing we want to talk about just to get a gloss of like how this stuff changes over time like i was saying is how do these monsters get picked up by D? how what is the lore that they're given so for the simurg it does show up in the original fiend folio back in 1981 
Uh, it looks absolutely ridiculous. I wish that I could show an image on this podcast. It is literally a scarlet macaw with the head of a wolf. It looks bonkers. Like, I, it's, it's such a strange creature design. And I'm sure it was fan submitted, like, for sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> like half a, of everything back then. Yes, I cannot imagine that that was an actual design. Do you think, do you think there are any, like, monsters or, like, uh, NPCs that were fan submitted that were just, like, some dude's ex-girlfriend? <laughs> I have to imagine, yes. Like, there had to have been some weird submissions, for sure. <laughs> I call yeah. this the Lisa... Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know what the like screening process for this Fiend Folio magazine was, but good gravy. <laughs> Regardless of that, uh, in D and D lore, the Simurg does take on a lot of the mythology that it already came with in real life. So they're always kind-hearted. They protect those who dwell around them. Uh, when nesting atop a temple or sacred mountain, they often will comfort and help the local poor by healing their diseases. However, the Simarg will fly away from its nesting spot if too many humans crowd that spot. When it dies, it is consumed by a heatless flame and reborn elsewhere on the same plane of existence. This leads to it often being mistaken for a phoenix. So again, that like phoenix Simarg, uh mixture is happening. I mean, yeah. like, you know, there are people who still mix up frogs and toads, so. Yeah, yeah, well, see, I feel like we should know that by now, but I'll cut him some slack. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, because D&D also brings in, according to, I guess, unofficial lore, because we should mention that the Simurg is not actually in the 5e Monster Manual. But it is, and we're going to mention it here and give a great shout out. Uh, it is the only time that we will probably do this and not mention a creature that is not in an official published book. Oops. Uh, it is, though, in the Creature Codex published by Kobold Press in 2018, uh, which you can find, I think, at DM's Guild uh, is where I got it. I actually have it from back in the day. But yeah, uh, Kobold Press published the Creature Codex 2018. So you can go find your copy because we appreciate them doing that <laughs> <laughs> yes we do yes we do we are using the 5e monster manual as our main primary source but there are other sources out there creature codex is a good one but what's funny about this is that they do bring in the part about simurgs not getting along with snakes that is a DD lore um explicitly mentioned and apparently in DD, snakes also know this so snakes also uh avoid simurg birds <laughs> they are they are hostile towards one another. Uh, looking at our next creature, in D&D lore, as I was mentioning earlier, they split the idea of the genie into four different categories. And in D&D's case, they are split by elemental difference. So in this lore, a genie is born when the soul of a sentient living creature melds with the primordial matter of an elemental plane. The elemental planes listed are earth, air, fire, and water. Only under rare circumstances does this birth of a genie ever take place. Uh, in D&D, genies are considered slaveholders. Uh, mortal human slaves, often human slaves, serve to validate a genie's ultimate power. Genies then view their slaves as living property and take great pride in this because genies are not considered worth much without 
a lot of property that they own. The miraculous power of the genie, the grandeur of their abodes, and the number of their slaves allow them to sometimes delude themselves into believing they're as powerful as gods. They're not quite that powerful, but they sometimes think that they are. I do want to add that a big difference I noticed that the genie uh, background in in 5e does state that they are formed by souls of mortals that fuse in to the elemental planes, which is a very different background from like, hey, you're a demon. Uh, very, mm-hmm. very different there. Kind of like the farthest from the the you know traditional lore surrounding uh, this group of, of creatures. I did find that interesting, though, that D&D has made them more elemental based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was kind of a interesting change. It is. And it's not the same because as we see with like the Disney Aladdin genie, he's the typical comes out of a magic lamp. D&D doesn't work with that either. Like they kind of change classic representations and modern representations towards a third different thing. And that's cool. <laughs> so like we said, um, the elemental planes are earth, air, fire, and water. These are listed as the Tao, the Jinni, the Afriti, and the Marid, respectively. Like I said earlier, with the actual history of divs in Persian mythology, the Marid, Afriti, and Dijini are based on actual myth, but the Tao of the Earth Elemental Plane was actually made up specifically for D&D, which is an interesting And it's like the mean one. (laughs) Oh yeah, that one's the nastiest one, and they made it up. They all have different personalities from each other. (laughs) They're all kind of weird in that way. You heard it here. Ben is calling all of you D&D nerds weird. Weirdos. No, I shouldn't say that. I am doing this podcast. I'm not the weird one. <laughs> I'm not the weird nerd. <laughs> While in D&D, each type of genie has diff- different personality, of course, they definitely do not get along with each other. And they're all generally aligned with evil traits you know, similar to where they came from in per- the Persian mythology, they're all considered evil. So some of these traits are vengeance, deception, egoism, wrathfulness. They're not super fun to be around. And as far as the wish-granting capabilities that we sometimes give genies in modern conceptions, that like three wishes trope, only the noblest of genies in D&D have that ability to grant wishes. So that is not a given. Yeah, but they have other abilities. <laughs> Plenty of other abilities. Most of them used for not good things. Shh. <laughs> We're not at the combat part yet, are we? Not quite, because we also have to talk about another evil being, the Manticore. Get My this ex. out of the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they are no better in D&D lore than they are in actual lore. The description from the Monster Manual of the Manticore is, and I quote, a monster in every sense of the word... The manticore has a vaguely humanoid head, the body of a lion, and the wings of a dragon. A bristling mane stretches down the creature's back, and its long tail ends in a cluster of deadly spikes that can impale prey at impressive range. Sounds pretty much like the ancient description, except for the wings, like I said. Drawing from that same monster manual description, what's interesting to me is that manticores in D&D are fierce killers that hunt together in groups to take down larger prey and then they share that prey together afterwards in a nice little evil meal (laughs) they're not the smartest creatures according to the D &D lore but they are still malevolent 
They will often work with other groups like orcs or hobgoblins, providing aerial support during war or safety from enemies in exchange for receiving food from those groups. And then despite their pretty fearsome appearance and vicious tendencies, manticores in the D&D universe do have rivalries with similar monsters, including chimeras, griffins, and wyverns, and they fully avoid dragons. Apparently, dragons are like the only thing that manticores will not come up against. It's like me and fast food. (laughs) The one true enemy. (laughs) So now we would love to transition into the next part, which is if you are playing D&D or you are a DM, how can you use these monsters in your campaigns? So I'm not going to lie. I do not have in-depth plans for these three uh, as I did in the last episode. I do have some good suggestions here. For sure. I think, especially the last episode, it got me thinking so much that if you are able to tune in to Flaming Dice the week after Thanksgiving, uh, you may or may not see the Doolahan play out. <gasps> You're going to bring it in. Oh, <laughs> I totally did. That's how we ended the game last week. Yes. They are so angry at me. Uh, they thought they're dealing this whole like uh, undead ghost side story. And they thought like it was act like they were led to believe that if they went into the attic of this haunted house, they could stop it and turn it off. But what I had it do is as they climbed into the attic, they climbed out of a grave in a cemetery. What? Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) It was great. We had a good time. Um, But I ended it with like the zombies coming out of the ground and them being surrounded and like the specters uh, on top of the hill coming down at them. And like noises in the forest behind them, and the Doolahan standing at the top of the hill. That's they so were so scary. freaked out. Oh, it was great! It was great. Oh my gosh! That's it's also amazing. great if you want to come watch. Uh, because I was nice enough to let them try to gather allies. So now I have uh, eight NPCs I have to play that all have very different, distinct voices and personalities. It's like a one-woman show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may or may not have almost like I may or may not have straight my voice last night. <laughs> <laughs> the rain. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. It was good. Um, so I have a couple of things. So I'm gonna start with the gin, because why not? I I think we have a lot of different options here. So as we said, there are definitely four different kinds of, of genies in the D D lore. We have the Dao, which is our our neutral evil uh earth-based. We have our uh, genie which are chaotic good. There are air-based. We have the Afridi, which is our lawful evil fire-based, and the Myriad, which is kind of our chaotic neutral. Um, they all come with a variety of abilities. Um, they, they all are actually at challenge level 11, which is pretty great. Uh, their armor class varies from 18 to, um, to 17. So, Kind of right in the same area as far as difficulty. Their stats are kind of across the board, depending on which one you're looking at, kind of determines what stats were highlighted. Some of them tend to be more min-maxing than others. So the Ginny uh, tends to be the most, the most uh, evenly spread, whereas the, the Ifridi and the Dao and the Myriad tend to be more min-maxing, where they have their strength and constitution are incredibly high. Uh, and everything else is kind of more evened out. Like the Myriad has a plus eight in constitution. Uh, the Dao has a plus six in strength. So, you know, these are things that can take a beating pretty well and definitely can dish out some damage. You know, and their HP, it ranges from 
you know, 161 with the Ginny all the way up to 229 with the Myriad. So these can be pretty bulky things to fight in a way that they have decent armor class. And because of their elemental uh, nature, they have all of them have some sort of like immunity that is, you know, gives them another benefit. Um, they all have dark vision, which is really great. You know, if you ever want to throw people into caves or darkness, always fun. But what makes them interesting is that they all come with different spellcasting abilities and different spellcasting options. Typically, it plays into what their elements are. So, like, the Tao has things like Wall of Stone, um, can obviously conjure Earth Elementals. And, you know, having abilities like Earth Glide combined with Wall of Stone, pretty great. You know, make your own barrier and then, you know, use it. So, like, I think if I was using a Tao as a DM, I would have it create Wall of Stone to kind of separate players. And almost cut them off from each other. And then because the Tao has Earth Glide, like it can just go right through the stone and attack whoever it wants. So having that ability allows you to kind of single out who you see as the biggest threat and kind of go right for them. Dangerous. Yeah, I mean, especially considering that constitution too. Like, you know, a lot of, you know, they're going to be pretty good at taking a few hits too. They they also have, the Tao has advantage on like strength and dex throws. So literally, again, that wall of stone, get right up there with the tank and just take them out while no one's looking. Nice. I'm also seeing the Efridi, the fire one, can also do wall of fire. So same idea. So because it's immune to fire, you know, set up the wall of fire to cut off players and just go right through it. Just walk right through it. Oh, and then just, would... like, knock the crap out of whoever you isolated. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a great, like, I know as a DM, cutting players off from each other is such a mean, but also, like, really useful thing to do. Because you are then are, are making sure your monsters are not taking constant damage. Yeah, I think that's so correct because often or most of the time the monsters we talk about on this podcast are much better at movement than a human or not human a playable character that people would be playing um like the simmer bird i think has like an 80 foot movement speed in one turn that's yeah. very large so you can do a lot with well, how these monsters work all of them except for the Tao, have good fly speed too mm-hmm so I would take advantage of that. You know, you know that it can fly around the battlefield, kind of zooming in and out, especially if you have the firewall set up, like using that kind of thing for it to your advantage. The only one that doesn't have a good fly speed is the Tao, but the Tao has Earth Glide, which is where it really benefits. So if you're using a Tao, you want to set up, I mean, honestly, like my thought is to have it be in like an earthy maze. Oh, where it's like, popping totally in and out. Them. Like, yeah. Like, maybe the maze is, like, a trap triggered. They step on some sort of stone or relief, and all of a sudden, like, the stones in the ground rise to create walls separating them. Having that Tao kind of zoom in between the walls and kind of pop in and out of the ground, uh, that's going to be kind of terrifying for the players, and they're not going to really be able to respond in a way that they would like to respond as a group. Because you're going to isolate, you're going to be able to come in, make attacks, and leave. But I think doing so you know, then encourages your players to think outside the box. Like, how do you get out of the situation <laughs> and ensure that you're not separated? Um, you know, the Myriad having 90 feet of water movement. Mm. I'm putting this thing near water. Like mm. this fight is happening in a spot where it's not constant water. 
maybe it's uh, near like a river or something like that. Or no, I like river. I'm going to stay with river. Maybe it's near a river. And like, you know, this thing can be popping in and out of the river and, you mm-hmm. know, those ambush attacks. And I know I, I clearly like that kind of attacks as a DM, but I think it's because as a player, they're so inclined to want to let's surround it and attack. And having movement and having surprise and having your players say, okay, I don't know where it's coming from. How do I prepare? To me, like that's the ultimate way to run the game because then you're pushing your players to actually like think, okay, I need to change my strategy from what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. I know. That's, and if it answers your question here, Ben, I am the world's meanest elementary school teacher. I'm well aware. <laughs> Listen, I was wondering. <laughs> True story. I honestly like I do think all of them belong in their elemental like plane. I think that's where they really thrive. Uh except for the Ginny. Because of the Ginny's abilities and it being gaseous, I honestly want to see it somewhere where there's like maybe like almost like toxic gas. Oh. Uh because it yeah. doesn't have an ability to create like whirlwinds and I mean we're talking, you know, pretty pretty large you know it's like a 30 foot tall cylinder of air right it's a little much (laughs) and i just think you know like having that air and a poison gas floating around is kind of dangerous (laughs) yeah you could really mess up a whole party yeah yeah well the other great thing is they all get like invisibility too so again the same way i was saying like these stealthy attacks having the creatures go invisible hide back into their element and you know the players then have a round where they think they're preparing but are they actually preparing if they don't know where the attack's coming from? I think that's the best part about these genies is they are so unpredictable. They yeah. can just show up somewhere else that you didn't expect. Well, and some of the, the, the spells they get, like if Freedy getting a large and reduce is, is pretty can be pretty nasty too. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, just that ability to not only like increase its own size. <laughs> But like decrease your players into smaller creatures, I think is is pretty great. Um, it's almost funny. Like that's almost just mean, embarrassing. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, but they do D and D describe them ha- very heavily as slavers, and they all do have plane shift. Uh, so you know, a plot hook could be them kidnapping people. I guess we keep coming back to this. Sorry, <laughs> and you know them having plane shift and players trying to catch them or something. You know, maybe it's like a, a cops and robbers kind of chase. I like I like I like chase fights a lot too, and I I do a lot of chase fights with players. I think they're fun. Yeah, that's I mean those are the kind of things I'd be looking at personally. Uh, so mm. yeah, I I will say, and I can tell you this that in the in the previous uh, Flaming Dice campaign, the one we played for like two and a half years, uh, Brittany, who's one of the Pika Science hosts here, her character uh, is a is a Genasi, and I had an entire sub subplot planned. And I had purchased so many Jin minis and Genasi minis. I had this whole like like turf war planned subplot. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, that it was like this whole thing. Uh, it was an entire joke about like they fought an elemental once, and she was like, "Is that my grandpa?" <laughs> so I was like, well, "No, but what if I could find a way to throw a subplot in for like? What if we could work with that?" Yeah, yeah, yeah it became a thing. Okay, so next up, I'm gonna go to Manticore. Honestly. I love these things as pack hunters. Isn't it scary? I I love that, you know, the tail spikes regrow. 
Yeah, oh, that part. And I should point out that the regrowth is something that shows up sometimes in real mythology and sometimes not. Like, I don't know why people decide to add it or not, but it is here in D&D. Um, I almost, because it has dark vision, and it has really good dark vision, too. It's not 30 feet. It is 60 feet. And, you know, its fly speed is 50. Honestly, with this thing being a challenge level three and its stealth, you know, you're going to have a plus three to stealth, which isn't terrible. I almost kind of want to see this thing as like a nighttime ambush for maybe like a level four or five party. Uh, And like, and I mean more than one, like in a forest, like, you know, they're like trailing, trying to find a campsite. And I imagine uh, several of these come in and like attack the group at once. You know, so you can, uh, by the way, I forgot to mention that. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Genies are on page 141 of the Monster Manual and Manticores are on page 213 of the Monster Manual. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> for those of you following at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, for a challenge level, like a challenge rating th- creature uh, of three, having 68 hit points and 14 armor class is actually pretty decent, especially the fact that it gets three attacks per turn. Like, I imagine if you have, like, three or four of these things, like, that's brutal. It's awful. How and do we get out of that? because they have flight. And if yeah. you're doing it, like, as an ambush, like, you know, th- these creatures are on the hunt. It's night. You're prey. I love the idea of these things kind of, like, sneaking in or swooping down from the sky uh-huh. in, like, a thick, almost like, like, pine. Uh, maybe not pine. Well, I like pine. Pine pine's in my head right now because it's, it's getting colder up here. Uh, you know, forests and these creatures kind of swerving in between the trees because they have higher movement and they can fly makes it harder for the players to kind of dodge. So their hat players then have to deal with the obstacles of, like, their actual trees here. Like, you got to move around and, again, creating... Uh, movement limitations which you know then creates another barrier to how the players plan and i love the idea of these manticores uh having a plus three in strength again for a challenge level three not bad coming in and like swooping down and grabbing players mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. all of a sudden you turn around and your rogue is gone <laughs> <laughs> that would be me i would be the one picked up off to nowhere <laughs> And, you know, especially like, you know, one of these is bad enough, but having like three or four of them to deal with that once where they're coming in and trying to like swoop and grab players. And like, I think if it is like the Velociraptor scene in the Lost World of Jurassic Park. Yes. Well, because that's their only goal here is eating. They want to eat you. Yeah, they don't yeah. have another agenda. Yeah. And I think if they were pack hunters, thinking about how different types of pack hunters work, depending on the type of prey they're hunting. I think that having them go after individual targets on the outside and trying to carry them away, um, almost like, and I know some uh, sea uh, sea predators do this, marine predators do this, where, you know, they'll bite and maim and then let the thing get away a little bit. So, you know, waste its energy, then they'll come back and take another good bite. Mm-hmm. They're almost like playing with their food. And I'd like to see that, you know, the manticore picks up the player, pulls it away, but then drops it. And then not only are you taking right? bite damage, now you're mm-hmm. going to take fall damage. And you're in a forest. And then they're going to come back. And, and because they have high again. flight. Yeah, and they have higher flight speed. They can like zoom right in and out and get right up there with you. Oh, just the fact that you're trying to orchestrate this at night makes it so terrifying. Like, <laughs> I can totally see this. Yeah, I know. My players, my players uh, kind of get hurt a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's a little adventure if it was all safe? Come on now. 
<laughs> no, it's true. Uh, very true. I uh, so that said, our our last and final creature, which I'm gonna I'm gonna share with you something great here, is our uh, our great friend the Simurg. As we said, this is in the Creature Codex, uh, published by Kobold Press in 2018, and this lovely guy can be found on page something 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 339 sorry 339 i i have always wanted because i have i have crazy ideas for campaigns uh and if anyone does tune into flaming days please do uh the game that we've been running i cannot give it away uh just world amnesia i'm gonna leave it at that uh Oh, it's been fun. Uh, I, I like uh, I like messing with my players a little bit, and I do have another small small campaign plan based on the anime. I'm hope none of you repeat this because I know my players don't listen to this. Secrets <laughs> based on the anime summertime rendering. Wow. Do you know that one? I don't. <laughs> so it's it a doppelganger great. time loop anime. Whoa! So you've doppel- you've okay. doppelgangers, but also time loops happening. Oh gosh, that's that's juicy. That's juicy. So I also have another mini campaign planned that I'd like to do at some point where my players play an evil party. Yes. Oh, it's so fun to play evil. Uh, and their goal is to like essentially disrupt and essentially cause the apocalypse. <laughs> to cause the oh, that's amazing. I love that idea. And I would use a Simurg in that campaign. Because uh, we yeah. know they're like they're used in D anD D as like a guardian, especially with temples. Um, I think that's where it would really shine. Mm-hmm. Is maybe Ooh. it's there with temple guardians trying to protect some relic. Yeah, because the Simurg does a great job with support. It has a lot of healing spells. It has restoring spells. It can remove curses. Having this thing kind of be like the backup for the the NPCs that are protecting the relic, kind of in the same way that often DMs will like have. You know, the players befriend some benevolent creature who's like, oh, I'll come fight with you later. I think having it be the opposite would just be freaking awesome. Because, you know, as a player, you expect that, like, oh, you know, that dragon, we made friends. He's going to show up at the big bad boss. Don't worry. But you're not expecting the enemies that you're about to fight to also have made a powerful friend. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then their powerful friend shows up and is like, don't worry, I have your back, guys. I'm here to protect you. And you're That's like, not the oh, same ways. I, I imagine it's a little more magical than that. <laughs> I think actually, no, this was the manticore. It, apparently the manticore sounds like a trumpet. I don't know what a simurg Like a trumpet? Like. That's what I read. I don't ah! know. <laughs> yeah. Ah! I don't know. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to run manticores and that's going to be the sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably the simurg. Oh, let's see. It says it has a howl. Well, it has a howl like a wolf. That makes sense because it's like no. A- the Simurg is not going to sound like that. It's it's going to sound. Uh, um, what if it's Jack Black? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Ciao. It's like a sacred temple. You've walked up a million stairs to get this relic to cause the apocalypse, <laughs> and it's just like Jack Black's voice. I would lose my mind. <laughs> I I mean I I may not do bizarre things like that in my games. No, never. My players are really frustrated. The the really powerful character they met and befriended uh, talks all about just like this. You know, she also is excited. You better come on back and help her out later. So they're like, "Well, this is a fantasy game," and I'm like, "Great, that's her voice." Yeah. <laughs> well, how, what's wrong with that? <laughs> oh, I love it. I love messing. I I love I love it. I uh, yeah. No, I honestly want to see this thing 
be the ally to the temple guardians <laughs> that the players are not expecting. And like it shows up not in round one, but like in round two after the players already have their strategy Ooh. and just throw the strategy off. Yes, that excellent advice regardless is set up something where the players think they know uh-huh have a plan and then totally wipe it yeah well and that's gonna that that's what happened with them coming into the cemetery um yeah <laughs> they they did not think that that's what's gonna happen they're like well, we're gonna be in an attic here's our plans and then they came out and they're in the cemetery and they're like wait what do we do now and then for them to then Ooh. try to say okay well we're in the cemetery and they, you know, have a plan until the skeletons pop up all around them. And they're like, okay, crap, that changes that plan. Oh. I think it's important as a DM to constantly have the battle be shifting. Yeah. In a way that it's unpredictable so that your players are constantly having to refine and, and, and rethink what they are doing. Uh, but if you'd like to see me use some of those amazing strategies from the Doolahan episode on November 29th at Flaming Dice, I, I will warn everyone, it is not PG in any way, shape, or form. Unlike this very family-friendly podcast. <laughs> uh, we do try pretty hard here at Pika Science to actually be at least, you know, PG, sometimes PG-13. Uh, but Flaming Dice is in no way, shape, or form. <laughs> <laughs> so put your kids to bed. And yeah, move on over there. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. I hope those are some great suggestions that you all can use in your games and maybe some ideas for other similar creatures as well. Yeah, absolutely. I know one of the ones we did not get to. There's also the rock bird, which is in the monster manual on some I love rock. Yeah, that is also Persian. I actually know someone who's named after it. Is their name just rock? R-O-C. Really? Interesting. And their sibling's name is Fox. And their other sibling is Oak. (laughs) This is... Okay, I'm seeing trends. And their other sibling <laughs> is Jet. Jet. Wait, I love this. That's that's. It feels like they're all related somehow, like conceptually. <laughs> <laughs> Not like siblings, no, just conceptually. Okay, sure, yeah. <laughs> I did find, okay, page 260 of the Monster Manual is the rock, uh, along with his siblings. Uh, <laughs> and then I also know that the... Ghoul one page one forty eight. The ghoul also has a connection to Persian mythology. So those are also a couple that you can look into on your own that are from the same part of the world. Yeah, no, and I I do love rocks. Um, just like general rocks or no, the bird. Uh, <laughs> and I I, I kind of hope we were going to talk about them because I love anything that flies. Mm-hmm. I think it makes combat so interesting. And a creature that's big enough to pick up, like, cows and drop them on your players? Can't beat it. Can't beat it. Mm Mm-mm. Ooh. So. Well, that was fun. Hopefully you all come back next time. Please like and subscribe and share. Tell one friend. And if you could please share us on social media, we will be looking uh, for you and giving you a shout out next time because we appreciate that. Absolutely. You can tune in here every month at Ben Rickton's Guide to Monsters and Lore. And ramen (laughs) and other silly things (laughs) we love you bye